Good morning. Good morning. All right. Hey, he is risen. And indeed, you're going, wait a minute, Nathan, this is Christmas season. This is not uh, Easter season. Well, beloved, uh, every day this side of the resurrection is resurrection days to celebrate, correct? Uh, and so, you know, when I thought about this in planning out this sermon schedule, I knew that we would be celebrating or thinking about the resurrection amidst the Christmas season. And I think that's a great opportunity to be oriented to in the coming of Christ, where eventually he will go. And so I hope these meditations today and next week and the like will help encourage you uh, as you consider uh, Christ in his coming, uh, eventually as to where he will go in light of what he's already done. Many of you know that uh, I sometimes refer to the teaching of the resurrection as the oh yeah doctrine. And the reason for that is because in the midst of uh, membership discussions, we inevitably will ask the question, what is the gospel? How is someone saved? Are you forgiven? How can you go be with God? And people will say, well, you need to trust in the death of Christ to pay for your sin. And I don't want to give, and they stop talking. And I don't want to give them the rest of the answers, the rest of the story. So I say, is, did anything else happen? And inevitably, Probably, no kidding, I would be willing to guess 60 to 70% of them will say, Oh yeah, and he rose from the dead. <laughs> and of course, if the Apostle Paul, I often think of Paul sitting next to me in those moments going, What do you mean, oh yeah? If Christ does not raise from the dead, then our faith is futile. And so when you slow down and think about it, if Christians are not readily aware of the resurrection, that means... They are also not readily aware of the power of the gospel. The cross, of course, was the payment of our sins. The resurrection was and is the power to overcome sin and death. Therefore, if we are not, then, beloved, readily aware of the resurrection, it would make sense as to why so many Christians struggle to get on in the Christian life. And so it is my prayer that for all of us, By the end of this time together, considering this text, we will come to live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So last week we considered the death of death and the death of Christ. This week we will consider the life of life and the life of Christ. And so, just as it was a matter of first importance in the cross, so it is a matter of first importance in the resurrection. It defines us. It orients us. And let's see how. When we left Christ, we remember that he breathed his last. Again, his death was our death uh, at the cross. We recall the teaching of Romans, which says the wages of sin is death. And so Christ paid that wage for those of us that trust him. He died. And then after his death, we read this in Luke 23, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And so here, as Luke writes, he means to show us yet again that everyone around Jesus, including his enemies, 
everyone saw his innocence. That's what Luke is drawing out for Theophilus. Time and again, everybody's looking at him, seeing his innocence. And that's critical to our faith as Christians. Because if Christ is not innocent, if he is guilty even of one sin, then he cannot atone for the sins of many. The crowds that assembled for that spectacle of Jesus on the cross, they apparently see his death and they return home again, beating their chest. And what that seems to indicate in other scriptures, that phrase, beating chest, that seems to indicate some level of repentance. Apparently at the death of Christ, seeing that, there was this sense of revelation for some. There was something about the way that he died that communicated the worth of Jesus. All of his acquaintances, they stood at a distance, as did the women who had followed him all the way from Galilee, which is, by the way, this guy's about 120 miles away. And is there, we are recall, at the death of Christ before he died, he said, it is finished. But listen, it is not over. <laughs> he had atoned for sin, but he still needs to triumph over sin. Take a look at verse 50. So we consider still the death of Christ. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So Joseph, this guy Joseph, uh, we're told was looking for the kingdom of God. That might sound somewhat familiar to you. You remember way back at the birth of Christ, remember Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. Joseph, this man Joseph, was evidently pursuing the truth, which led him to pursue the kingdom of God, which led him to pursue Christ, who was the king of the kingdom of God. Joseph was so interested in the kingdom that he went against all of his colleagues. Do you notice that? And he did not approve at that mock trial that Caiaphas was leading over. Now, since the uh, decision was unanimous by that Sanhedrin, evidently Joseph of Arimathea decided to not even show up. This man loved Jesus. This man believed in Jesus so much so that he would risk his life to ask for the body of Jesus from Pilate in order to have that body be properly buried. And we also know something from the gospel according to John, that Joseph wasn't alone, right? He had a Another man with him, Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus? From the teaching of John chapter 3, evidently, from that nighttime conversation, uh, evidently, uh, Nicodemus believed that he needed to be born again. And so he too came with Joseph uh, to care for the body. And we know from John that he brings as many as 75 pounds of spices for the body of Christ. And they, in a great deal of haste, they lay Jesus' body In Joseph's own tomb. Nobody had been laid there before. They needed to have him buried before sundown. Because at sundown is when the Sabbath began. So the women who had come with him from Galilee. They saw where he was laid. They prepared spices of their own for the body. 
And on the Sabbath, it says, again, they rested. Now, we know from the book of Matthew that some of the Pharisees asked Pilate to send some guards to guard the tomb. Now, here's what's interesting. The the Pharisees, evidently, they remembered something that Jesus said more than his own disciples did. Namely, that he said that he was going to raise three days later. And the Pharisees didn't want uh, the disciples to be able to come in there and steal the body. And so they place guards in front of that tomb. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. But for now, Jesus is dead. It's evident that Jesus is dead. Some of you may have heard this idea of a swoon theory. Where Jesus didn't actually die, but he was just swooning. And yet, friends, that cannot be the case. Such that he was uh, placed in a tomb and yet wasn't dead and yet strong enough to wake up and then move a rock away. I'm pretty sure it's... Not a reliable account. But instead, the suffering of Christ was so severe. The handling of the body, the placing on of the linen, evidently shows that Jesus was, again, dead. No one could have suffered like he did and be strong enough to roll a rock away on his own. And so Jesus, we see, is dead on a Friday. Jesus is dead on a Saturday. And he's dead on Sunday. Three days. He's dead. Until he wasn't. He told his disciples time and again that he was going to rise on the third day. And the third day came, and let's see what Luke tells us. Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. These are the ladies. Taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) So these godly gals were going to the tomb to finish up what they had done so hastily on Friday. Again, they wanted to prepare the body. We know back in verse 55, these ladies knew where the tomb was. As some have said that they maybe, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. No, they knew. Verse 55 makes clear these ladies knew where that tomb was. And as they get closer to the tomb, it's interesting. Mark uh, gives this uh, interaction to go, how are they going to roll the tomb? How are we going to roll the tomb away? It's a really big stone. And yet when they show up, what they see in advance is that fact that tomb had, that rock had been rolled away from the tomb. Imagine seeing that for a moment. That tomb, that rock rolled away from the tomb. Matthew tells us that it was an angel of the Lord that descended and rolled the rock away. And of course, if you were there too, you would have done the same thing they did. They rush in. They, they run in to see what is there. And once they get inside, what do they see? But nothing. Save some linen clothes folded. No body. And they are immediately, the text tells us, perplexed. In the tomb, there are, it says, two men wearing dazzling apparel. It's indicating that they are angels. We know from Mark that there's, Mark says that there's one angel there, but he, rep- well, he doesn't say there's one angel, he just says one spoke. So we know that it was not only one, but there was two. But one was the primary speaker there, and that one that speaks asks what I believe to be one of the most perplexing questions in the entire Bible. Verse 5, they ask to those ladies as they're in the tomb, why are you looking for the living among the dead? text tells us that these ladies' faces are down. But if I would have been there and I heard that question, here would have been my response. I'm not. 
I'm not looking for the living among the dead. I'm looking for the dead among the living. Where's the body of Jesus? But these angels were trying to correct the thinking of these women. They came looking for the body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus. When the angels want them to say they should have been looking for the life of Jesus. Listen as they explain. Verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. In other words, before we even got to Jerusalem. Verse 7. That the Son of Man, note the word must, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Now this makes those of us that maybe have participated in the oh yeah doctrine, it makes us feel not so bad, doesn't it? Because <laughs> apparently these women either forgot, didn't believe, or were so grief stricken, just didn't think about it. But the second the angels remind them of the words of Christ, what happens? They remember. They remember. And I hope that's true of all of us this morning. That we remember that amidst the craziness of this cultural moment, we must not, rem- we must not forget that Christ has risen from the grave. Don't forget the resurrection. Christ is risen. Death couldn't hold him. He's overcome sin and death. Remember that, beloved. Remember that. When you wake up tomorrow, remember the resurrection. Remember the tomb in Jerusalem is empty. He has done what no one else has ever claimed to do or been able to do, even if they claimed it. Defeat sin and death. And not only has he defeated sin and death, not only should we remember that every day and the power of that every day, also too, we have to go and tell others about that resurrection too. Look at verse 9. Look at verse comes next. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. First thing they did is go tell Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now I love this image. I'm imagining Walking down a street in Jerusalem and seeing this man, Peter, coming back from the tomb, his face marveling, tired (sighs) from having just come back from the tomb. Marveling. What would that have been like to see the face of Peter? Now let's let's recall, remember the last time we saw Peter, what had happened? He'd failed him. And now here it is. He's marveling at this empty tomb. That he is in fact alive. And yet at the same time we see that Peter and the rest of the apostles. They thought it just to be an idle tale. And yet they believed enough to go and check for themselves. At least a couple of them did. But they believed it to be an idle tale. And I wonder maybe that's why you're here this morning. Maybe that's why you're watching at home. You believe it to be an idle tale. The resurrection. The fact is that death is, death is real, right? As this ambulance illustrates for us, death is real. They're hurrying off to the hospital so that they don't die. And there was one that defeated that, that overcame it. And you say, that seems too much. Seems too crazy. Seems to be an idle tale. Well, if you're not a Christian, 
and you are wondering about this, the resurrection of Jesus is not an idle tale, and I'm going to give you six reasons why. Six reasons why. Six reasons why we have confidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real and not some fantastical myth, not some idle tale along the lines of the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or something like that. The first reason is right there in the text. Notice who were the first people to hear about the resurrection and spread the word. Who is it? It's women. And so the first reason why we have confidence that Jesus really did raise from the dead is because much to the shame of that culture, the testimony of a woman could not be admitted uh, in a court of law. Therefore, if you are going to lie about a resurrection uh, and build some sort of fantastical tale, you most definitely do not do it like this. You don't make the first eyewitnesses and the first spreaders of that people whose testimony would not even have been admitted. We know from the book of John that it was Mary Magdalene who was the first to see the resurrected Jesus. And so again, if this is all a myth, you don't build myths this way. And since we're here, have you noticed, beloved, by the way, how often women come up in the book of Luke? Have you noticed how often women come up in the events of the cross and the resurrection? Jesus, friends, valued women as equal participants of a society, even when they weren't treated as such in those times. And from that day until this day, even sadly in the church, even complementarian churches, maybe even especially complementarian churches, women have been treated as less valuable, something less than the truth of their full dignity as human beings created in the image of God. And that's shameful. It's wrong. It's lamentable. It's true that there are distinct gender roles. Jesus taught that. Paul teaches that. The apostles teach that. But friends, that has nothing to do with denigrating women in any way. And so may we, may we learn from the mistakes of first century Israel. May we learn from the mistakes of the 21st American church and honor women. But again, that wasn't the case in much of first century Israel. And so the first reason we can have confidence in the reality of the resurrection is that the writers built their testimony on the first eyewitnesses that were seen to be in their time as unreliable witnesses. Second reason is that there's not only one or two eyewitnesses to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Scripture says there was literally hundreds of eyewitnesses to his resurrection. In other words, the resurrection of Christ, and for that matter, the teaching of Christ, was not something done in secret like we read about with Joseph Smith in the Mormon faith, or Muhammad in the Islamic faith. No, Jesus' teaching, and most especially his resurrection, was done in public. After he resurrected, he visited women, he visited his 12 disciples, he visited at least 500 other witnesses after the resurrection. And many of those people were still alive at the time of the writing. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. Third reason why we can believe in the reality of the resurrection is found in the fact that the disciples died for testifying to this resurrection. They died for testifying to the resurrection. It's one thing to believe in the Loch Ness Monster. It's another thing to believe in the Loch Ness Monster and maybe be willing to die for the reality of the Loch Ness Monster. It's still another thing to not only be willing to do it, but to actually do it. And that, in fact, is what the disciples have done. They did die for teaching this resurrection. And so if they stole the body as the Pharisees feared, 
and then made the whole thing up, then they would have knowingly died for a lie. Now, some have said to me, as I've taught that before, well, Nathan, people die for lies all the time, knowingly die for lies all the time. Joseph Smith died for a lie. That's true. But friend, they did not knowingly die for a lie when they stood to gain nothing in the world. And that's what the disciples did. They stood to gain nothing in the world. These disciples didn't preach the resurrection and then surround themselves with multiple wives and castles and worldly wealth. No, they lived simply. They preached chastity and suffering for preaching the resurrection. The most probable reason is that they believed it because it was true. Fourth reason is the unlikely converts. The unlikely converts. James was a brother of Jesus and Paul was the greatest enemy of Jesus before his experience to the resurrection and the ascended Jesus. So for instance, I have a brother, I have an older brother. If my older brother were to die, were to say that he died and rose from the dead, you would have no greater advocate to tell you that that was not true than me. I know my brother. And yet James, the brother of Jesus, the half we might say brother of Jesus, was one of the greatest leaders in the first century church. And the other, Paul, the apostle Paul, is the greatest enemy of the church. And so yet he goes to become the greatest champion of, of the faith. What changed him? Well, he would tell you the resurrected and ascended Jesus. What's the most likely reason that these had these huge changes than that the resurrection is true? Fifth reason we can have confidence in the reality of Jesus' resurrection is the immediate change of thousands of years of religious traditions. The immediate change of thousands of years of religious traditions. The Jews had been worshiping the Lord for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday. It was said to be a holy day. And yet thousands of them within the, within days of the resurrection began worshiping the Lord Jesus on a Sunday like we are. This is why we worship on Sundays because he was raised on the first day of the week. And so how do you, how do you account for the immediate change of thousands of years of religious tradition, as well as many other immediate changes of ceasing of offering, for instance, animal sacrifices? How do you account for the devotion of New Testament books as scripture alongside of the law and the prophets and the writings? How do you account for all of those just immediate changes? Unless, again, they had an experience with the resurrected Jesus. Sixth reason. And to me, this is the most convincing of all. If Jesus never actually rose from the dead and the apostles or some early Christians just made it all up, there was one very simple way to expose it as a lie. Simply produce the body. Show them where the body is. And it's over. Christianity's done. And the early Christians, keep in mind, the early Christians, sorry, not the early Christians, the early Romans and the early Jews, many of the early Jews, they hated the gospel. They hated Christians. The name Christian was a was just a, mock, a way to mock Christians. Romans and Jews hated them. They were the ones in control. And if it was all just a big lie, they could have just said, they're all lying. Look, the body's right here. Now, again, we go back. Somebody said, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. Well, we've already answered that one. Knowingly that the Jesus or that the disciples did not knowingly die for a lie when they stood to gain nothing. The most reasonable conclusion, friends, is that Jesus really did die and that he really did raise bodily from the dead, just as he said he would. 
the disciples eventually learned that it wasn't an idle tale. It was real. So real again that they were willing to die in the world to tell people about it. Which leads to the next question. Why is the resurrection of Christ a matter of first importance? How would you answer that? Why is the resurrection a matter of first importance for Christians? What exactly did it accomplish? And what application does that have for us as Christians? Well, I'm going to give you 10 accomplishments. I could give you 20, but I'm going to give you 10. I'm going to give you one application to each of them, and I'm going to move quickly. So if you don't want, if you just want to enjoy these truths and not have to kind of keep up and writing them all down, go to my, I can't believe I'm going to say this, go to my Instagram page, all right, Nathan M. Knight. I posted them already. They're right there. So if you just want to hear these and enjoy them, go to that and you can copy them later. 10 accomplishments and 10 applications for those of us in Christ Jesus in the resurrection. What did the resurrection achieve? First, it fulfilled scripture. It fulfilled scripture. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now we'll think about this more next week, but in no other place, beloved, have we do we have more promises than we see here in scripture that eventually become true proven true than in the Bible. No other place can we find more promises that found to be true than in the Bible. No promise more so even than the resurrection. God promised a resurrection. God fulfilled that promise. Therefore, here's the application. Trust the word of God. Trust the Bible. Read the Bible. Meditate on the Bible. Preach the Bible to your children, to your friends. Friends, our society, time after time, comes up with all of these promises, and they've not made good on them. That happens in generation after generation. And in this book, we find that God does fulfill what he said he would do. Trust the word. Second, the resurrection achieved the power over death. Power over death. Romans 6, 9 to 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives to God. So I grew up in Florida and we would hear all the time about Ponce de Leon trying to find the fountain of youth. And medical advances, praise the Lord in many ways, they're trying to defeat death in some capacity. So humanity has longed to defeat its greatest enemy of death, hasn't it? It is the greatest enemy of humanity, and while we have thankfully uh, may have prolonged the lifespan of the average person, friends, listen, the, the, the average death rate is still 100%. An amazing thing about that, though, is that death still feels unnatural, doesn't it? Because it's supposed to be. It's not the way the world is supposed to be. Death is not the way the world is supposed to be. But the resurrection of Christ shows that he, Jesus, has power over death. And all those that trust him likewise have that same power in him. We're in upon his return. Scripture says that we will see him and be like him. And therein, 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear, the sting, the pain of death will be away. It'll be done with. Therefore, here's the application. Therefore, beloved, do not fear dying. Do not fear death. 
Many of you know this has been a struggle in my life. I stood over my dad as I wa- as he was dead. And since that moment, it's been difficult for me. And the ways in which I have, by the grace of God, overcome my fear is this teaching. Rehearsing the resurrection of Christ. There's no need for me to have fear. In Christ, death is de- defeated. Death is but a doorway to the presence of your Savior, wherein you will experience eternal bliss with him and one another. Third reason. In the resurrection, Jesus is able to justify sinners. Resurrection, Jesus is able to justify sinners. Referencing justification, Paul writes in Romans 4, 24 to 25, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and, listen, raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. We normally think about the cross as the place of our justification, and rightfully so. But here Paul is helping us see that if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, then he is no different than any other man. This is why Paul says that if Christ does not raise from the dead, our faith is pointless. You are wasting your time this morning if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But if he did, that changes everything. Most especially, is he able to then justify sinners? He's able to do what he said he came to do. His resurrection reveals that his sacrifice was accepted for all who believe. His resurrection is proof of our justification, our righteousness. Therefore, application, Christian, you are forgiven. You're counted righteous. Other people may try and condemn you. Other people may try to make you feel guilty. Maybe you're your own worst enemy. And you're so hard on yourself and you live in guilt. Listen, Jesus was raised for your justification. You're counted righteous. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's overcome it all. His resurrection is proof of your justification. You are forgiven. You are counted righteous. No guilt, no shame. He took the guilt and the shame from you. And he gave you his righteousness. Beloved, remember your baptism when you struggle with guilt and shame. Remember your baptism. When you went down under the waters, you died. And when you came up out of those waters with Christ in his resurrection, you came alive. You're justified. You have died and in Christ you are forgiven. You are counted righteous. Fourth Accomplishment of the resurrection. Power over sin. Power over sin. Back to Romans 6, verse 10 and 12 to 12. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. All right, listen to the application. You ready? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus died to sin and for sin. He now lives to the Father in the resurrection. So, beloved, you also must consider yourselves the same way. Dead to sin and alive to God. And then we get this verse, this next verse in verse 13. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Did y'all catch that first word? He said, let. Let not sin reign. 
In other words, because of the resurrection of Christ, Paul is saying, the Spirit of God is in you, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Therefore, you can choose righteousness. You can choose obedience and not sin. You can resist the devil. You can resist the world. You can resist your own passions. Listen, I know it doesn't feel that way. But I would ask you in those moments when it doesn't feel that way, how much have you considered the resurrection? How much have you thought about the righteousness that you have? How much have you prayed to live in the power of that resurrection in those moments? Beloved, you are alive to God. Look to him. Cultivate a view of him. Fear him. Be in awe of him. And choose righteousness. You can. Fifth, the resurrection displays God's amazing grace. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So whenever, and I do mean whenever, you feel like God is against you, remember the resurrection. He raised Christ up so that you might be raised up so that He might show you and the rest of the world his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards you. The resurrection and eventually the the ascension reveals the amazing grace of God towards you. God is not harsh. The resurrection shows God is not harsh. He's not mean-spirited. He's not heavy-handed. He rose Jesus up and he rose you up with him. So as to show you and the world how immeasurably great his grace is. His kindness is. Paul says, right, where where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. So listen, there's more grace in him than there is sin in you. And so the whole, one of the aspects of the resurrection is to teach you, beloved. God is immeasurably gracious. Let the resurrection remind you of that. Think about God being a gracious God. The resurrection teaches us that. Six, the resurrection achieves future glory. Future glory. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans eight twenty three. If you guys were back here when I came back from my sabbatical, you remember this is the verse that just arrested me. We ourselves, he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly don't we groan we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons what is that the redemption of our bodies when jesus rose again he didn't have a spiritual body he had a glorified body i mean he's he's eating food his scars remain beloved but only so as to heal our scars His resurrection was a first fruits. And so we too will have glorified bodies like his. As Jesus has, as it has been said about Jesus, when he said, I will make all things new. Notice Jesus did not say, I will make all new things. I'll make all things new. 
Or as Al Walter says in his great book, Creation Regained, what sin has deformed, Christ will reform in that final resurrection. And so, beloved, as a day is coming when we will have glorified bodies on a glorified earth, worshiping a glorified and resurrected Savior. So that hunger, you heard Joey talked about it, that hunger for a better world. There's no COVID, no death, none of that, no distancing. That world, that hunger for it is real. And the resurrection points to its reality. We will have a future glory in Christ. Seventh, that then leads us to what the uh, resurrection accomplishes. It gives us hope. Hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to 20. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we don't have, if we only had hope in this life only, we would have reason to not have hope. But if he rose from the dead, we have reason to have hope. I can, again, going back to the sabbatical, sabbatical, I can remember the days leading up to my sabbatical. I had some difficult counseling situations I was working on. I had sermons I was trying to prepare for. And it was hard. But you know one of the things that got me through those times? As I got to thinking, this is so appropriate right now. I got to thinking, next month, I'm going to be in South Florida. And I'm going to swim in the ocean. In January. <laughs> That's amazing. And it was every bit as good as I thought it was going to be. When's my next sabbatical, by the way, again? Make me think about that. In other words, guys, I had, I had hope in a future reward. And that future reward, the prospect of that future reward, gave me hope amidst the pain and the difficulty. Therefore, no matter how hard it gets for us here, down on earth, we have reason to have hope. In other words, the best is always in front of us. The best is always in front of us. We will soon cross the Jordan and be in the new Jerusalem, beloved. Therefore, hope, hope. Eighth, the resurrection gives us confidence. Confidence in obedience or in faithfulness to Christ. Namely, that that obedience, that faithfulness will not be in vain. The resurrection teaches us, accomplishes for us, that our faithfulness is not in vain. Listen to this conclusion of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He's been meditating on the resurrection the entire chapter, and here's his conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Guys, even amidst COVID, Right? Abounding in the work of the Lord, even amidst COVID. That's not in the text, just to be clear. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, here's the application, that in the Lord your labor is not, 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 not in vain. Parents who've been praying for your sons or daughters, teaching them the gospel, and it ain't going well, and you're wondering, am I doing anything at all? Have reason to hope your labor is not in vain evangelists that have been trying to share the gospel with your parents with your friends your co-workers and nothing seems to be moving your labor is not in vain disciples those of you that have asked i I get I, i i strangely hear this somewhat frequently other christians you have christians have asked other christians to read books together meet up and pray together and those other christians said no i don't want to keep going your labor is not in vain 
wherever you are, hard relationships, difficulties, wherever you're trying to obey Jesus and it doesn't seem to be going good, your labor is not in vain. The resurrection purchased that. Right now counts forever. Counts forever. Every good that you do will go on. It will redound into the new heavens and new earth. It's not in vain. Keep going. Be steadfast. Don't give up. Stay at it. Your labor is not in vain. Ninth, justice. Justice. Jesus says in John 5, 28 to 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So friend, listen to me. If you have been the victim of abuse in some capacity, if you have been the victim of racism in some way, if you've been the victim of slander, someone has stolen from you, or they've done, some, done one of these things to someone you love or care about, and maybe you, it seems like those people have gotten away with it. Listen, the resurrection assures us that justice will be paid. Nobody gets off. Nobody gets off. So either that payment will be made when those per- persons repent and believe on Jesus and the judgment is placed upon him at the cross, or as that passage in John 5 teaches, they will be paid at the return of Christ. Either way, justice will be paid. Have encouragement in that. Tenth, finally. The resurrection gives Jesus the supremacy in all things. Gives Jesus the supremacy in all things. Listen to Colossians 1, verse 18. Referencing Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. The firstborn from the dead, why? That in everything he might be preeminent. And so guys, as a nation, we are divided as ever when it comes to kings and queens of this world. There are wars and rumors of wars in Sudan, in Nigeria, in Venezuela, in North Korea, in China, and a thousand other places. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us and accomplishes for us all the supremacy in all things. What was it he said? All authority in heaven on earth is mine. He said that when? After the resurrection. Nations rage and kingdoms totter. But he, Jesus, utters his words and the earth melts. All authority is his. Because, listen, the reason why all authority is his, not only in who he is, but what he has accomplished. He beat death and sin. And since we've seen that he is an immeasurably uh, rich and great, a God that is rich in grace, we then can rest Knowing that tonight and tomorrow and the next day, he is in control. We can rest in that. We can rest in knowing that God reigns. The accomplishment of the resurrection gives us that confidence. And so, beloved, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And as we will see in a couple of weeks, he's ascended. And so we have every reason to believe, beloved, we have every reason to believe that we can be a people that are stubborn in hope. Stubborn in hope. Impossibly 
impossible people that are unwilling to be moved from the hope that we have that the best is in front of us. We can be a people that will love their enemies, that will help each other, because we know that the work is, that it is finished, but it is not over and the end is coming. We can know in the midst of all the difficulties that are in front of us, we can know that the day is going to come and we will stand on the shores of the Jordan River with glorified bodies and we will look at each other and say, it was all worth it. As we enjoy resurrected bodies, what will that be like? And a resurrected earth, worshiping a resurrected, ascended, and supreme, beautiful Savior. Let's pray to him now. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the ways in which we neglect meditating on the power of the resurrection. May may we do it more readily. And may those that are considering following Christ, may they come to trust in the worth and the work of Christ that they might know the power of the resurrection themselves. And for the rest of us, amidst these difficult days, may we live in the power of our resurrected Savior and may we worship him knowing he has defeated death. May we look for the living among the dead. May we be like Joseph seeking the kingdom of God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.